When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Frank Lavallo, host of Novel Conversations. Before we start the show, we'd like to thank Visible Voice Books for sponsoring the Novel Conversations giveaway, which gives listeners a chance to win all eight classic novels featured in our fifth season. You can enter through our Novel Conversations Facebook page or tweet us at novel underscript converse, that's C-O-N-V-E-R-S, or head to our website blog, thefrontporchpeople.com backslash blog. Visible Voice Books is our local go-to for delving into our favorite books in a relaxed, inviting environment. And if you're not here in Cleveland, Ohio, you can always support Visible Voice Books by shopping online at visiblevoicebooks.com. Visible Voice Books. Without literature, life is hell. All right, up next, Novel Conversations. Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This conversation is about the novel, The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. And I'll be joined in conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Katie Smith and Peter Toomey. Katie, Peter, welcome. Hi, Frank. Hey, Frank. Uh, Katie, Peter, before we get started on our conversation about the novel, Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc, let me read a quick introduction. Written by Mark Twain and originally serialized in Harper's Magazine, The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc is a fictional biography of Joan of Arc. Though it purports to be a memoir written by her page, secretary, and lifelong friend, Sir Louis de Comte, In his voice, and writing 60 years after the fact, Sir Louis de Conte recalls the life of Joan of Arc, from her early visions to her final betrayal, through stories of childhood pleasures, great battles, and ecclesiastical inquisitions. Sir Louis de Conte and Mark Twain offer a panoramic historical novel worth reading and a heroine worth remembering. Peter, were you surprised to learn that Mark Twain had written a historical novel? Yes, I I was very surprised, but I was not surprised when I began reading it because it has the usual Twainian style and characters and situations. Peter, I agree with you completely. Mark Twain's style is all over this novel. All right, Peter, I said that the personal recollections of Joan of Arc, though a historical novel written by Mark Twain, actually purports to be a memoir written by Sir Louis de Conte. Tell me a little bit about our narrator, Sir Louis de Conte. Well, in usual Twain fashion, we begin by being introduced to the narrator. Or, in this case, Sir Louis de Conte introduces himself to us through a letter to his nephews and nieces. And it's kind of a preface to the beginning of the story. Actually, his great-great-grandnephews and nieces. Yes, yeah. This was about 60 years after all of this takes place. He's 82 years old, and he goes about telling us that he grew up with Joan of Arc, played with her, became her scribe, and kind of her confidant, really, throughout her life. And he was there for all of these events. 
So through this preface, we find out that Sir Louis de Conte has been an eyewitness to all of the events in Joan's life. Right. Actually, the personal recollections referred to in the title are really Sir Louis de Conte's personal recollections of Joan of Arc. His memories of her, what he remembers he saw, what he heard, and what he knew. Katie, how does Sir Louis de Conte actually start his story of Joan of Arc? Sir Louis de Conte begins his story telling us that he was an orphan coming out of a terrible battle that was happening in a war between the French and the English. This is during the Great Hundred Years' War between France and England. That's right. So he's taken by a priest in the town of Don Remé, and the neighboring family was the home of Jacques d'Arc, Joan's father. They had many children. They shared a garden with the priest in the parish, so they were childhood friends. The first stories we're told about this beautiful little town are of dragons and fairies as played by the town's boys and girls having fun around a fairy tree. Right. And you'd say, oh, that's right. Mark Twain is writing this book. In fact, he even references the word outlaws at some point. (laughs) And I really had to laugh at that because this is France in the 1400s. (laughs) Yeah, it's the oh-so-familiar Mark Twain gang roaming around. In this case, the French countryside. Exactly. Young boys and young girls having their adventures. But they're much more polite and pious. Certainly more polite and pious than Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. But Katie, tell me a little bit about the fairies and this fairy tree. Those stories seem to be very important to the children of this town. At the time of their youth, yeah. This was a favorite pastime to romp and play in the field under the big beautiful tree. It was sort of their playhouse, their gathering place. Uh, Maybe we would even call it a clubhouse. Yeah, exactly. Their home in the field. And it's also the home to the fairies. Now, of course, we're led to understand that these fairies are basically childhood imaginations. But these childhood imaginations have been with this fairy tree and in this town for hundreds of years. It's the generations of children who believe in the fairies and the fairy tree, but not the adults. By the time you're an adult, you've forgotten about these fairies. What do you think Mark Twain wanted us to take away from this story of the fairy tree and the fairies? Well, I think Twain was using that as a device to get to a point where he could show Joan's strong, logical, reasoning capabilities. And how does Mark Twain use the tree to do that? Well, the superstition was that the fairies could not show themselves to anyone but the children. So what happened was, one day the fairies were dancing around this fairy tree, and a woman happened to pass by and saw them. This then caused the town priest to come out and exorcise them. So Joan, who was sick when the priest did this exorcising over the fairies, she showed up to question him about it. And this is the first real scene where you see that there's greatness within her. She kind of upends the priest via her powers of logic. Right. Katie, essentially this eight-year-old girl goes toe-to-toe with the village priest and actually has a legal debate with him and convinces him that the fairies had no intent for them to be seen by an adult. It was actually the adult's fault for seeing them. Why should the fairies have been punished? It's not only a legal debate. It's a religious and a moral debate because the priests are questioning, what if these fairies are not good creatures? What if they are agents of Satan? And Joan rationalizes, But they have never done harm for these hundreds of years. They've been the friends of the children, so we can only judge based on those actions. Her logic is really terrific. And the novel makes it very clear that this priest feels completely defeated by this girl and her arguments. He actually asks for her forgiveness. Right. From an illiterate, uneducated peasant girl. And Peter, it's at this time we get two more stories about Joan of Arc that show us other aspects of her personality. 
One involves a stranger, and another one is about a madman who's being kept in a jail in town. Well, it's wartime in France. There are a lot of beggars and a lot of poor people in the country who kind of wander the countryside. So the family of Jacques d'Arc normally has dinner, tells these stories, and kind of has a good time around the fire in their warm house. Oftentimes, beggars come past, asking for food or shelter. On this one particular evening, a beggar comes past. Now, Jacques d'Arc is in the habit of turning them away, usually with a stern reprimand. But this fellow, he comes to the door, and he's so downtrodden and poor that Joan offers him her bowl of porridge. Now, she does this despite her father's insistence that she not give him food. This act showcases her moral compass. She always does the right thing, despite the circumstances. And Katie, after we're given an example of her intellectual abilities with the priest, and we're given this example of her compassion and charity towards the stranger, we now have a story that shows us some of her bravery when she has to confront the town's madman who's escaped from the prison. Yeah, he's escaped and he comes wielding an axe towards this group of children and townspeople, and they run for their lives. And it's Joan who's not afraid for her own life. She understands that this man is probably mentally ill. She confronts him, talks him down from his fury, and they walk hand in hand back into town. He actually hands her his axe. So she has felled the giant as a kid. Yeah, cute. Another thing about this event that Twain really begins to set up, this group gets together and talks about why they ran away or what would they have done if they'd stayed. One actually says that it's not that big a deal to stand up to a madman. So what we see is that Joan is surrounded by hypocrites. Frank, this is really foreshadowing bigger events that will happen later in the story. And isn't it actually during these conversations with the other kids that she starts to drop little prophecies? When one of the boys boasts that he's going to lead a great army and he'll die in a battlefield, she sort of utters almost to herself, no, actually, you'll remain in this village and die here an old man. Exactly. This is where Sir Louis de Conte begins to realize Joan has a secret. He suspects that she's in something of a trance. When she makes these sort of prophecies. Yeah, she's not even aware of what she's saying. She says it softly, but he's sitting close to her, so he hears it. But quickly there comes a moment where Sir Louis de Conn is confronted with absolute proofs that something's going on with Joan of Arc. He witnesses a miracle. He's with her when she receives a vision, and it's also made present to him. Let me read you the quote from the book. And now I saw a most strange thing, for I saw a white shadow come slowly gliding along the grass toward the tree. It was of grand proportions, a robed form with wings, and the whiteness of the shadow was not like any other whiteness that we know of, except it be the whiteness of the lightnings. But even the lightnings are not so intense as it was, for one can look at them without hurt, whereas this brilliancy was so blinding that it pained my eyes and brought water to them. My breath grew faint and difficult because of the terror and awe that possessed me. But he believes he may be dreaming, so he makes a mark on the tree. So if the mark is there when he wakes up, he'll know he actually wasn't dreaming. But he immediately confronts Joan about this vision, that he saw this lightness and this brightness around her. And he asks her about it. And she says, oh yes, it's actually been going on for quite a while, but only now have I been allowed to tell you about it. And I know that you made the mark on the tree, so don't worry, you did actually see this. This was no dream. But it doesn't just end with these visions. She now tells Sir Lacan about hearing voices. And the mission. 
Tell me about these voices and this mission. Well, Joan reveals to Louis de Camp that her voices have told her what's going to happen to France, that the king will be crowned, France will be delivered from the English, and it will happen within just two years' time. But she didn't just tell him, this is what's going to happen. No, she said, I'm going to lead it. I'm going to make it happen. How is this going to happen? And she says, by the hand of God. That's right. And essentially, this now 14-year-old Joan of Arc tells her best friend that she's been chosen by God to lead the French army and rescue France from the English. So her first step is to go to the governor. But Peter, a 14-year-old girl from the countryside, can't just walk into a governor's mansion and say, Hey, governor, give me some men. Give me some arms. I'm off to see the king. Mm, Kind of. Well, she can, but it's a long process. She goes back many times, and she's laughed at a lot, and she's made fun of. So after she reveals that God has sent her, of course they assume she's mad. The governor says, Hark, take this mad child home and whip her soundly. That's the best cure for her ailment. Now, guys, it's really not surprising that they all think she's mad. Essentially, she tells this governor, The king must make me his general, for it is appointed that I shall drive the English out of France and set the crown upon his head. And when the governor says, Well, who sent you with these extravagant messages? She says, My lord. The governor says, What lord? She says, The king of heaven. I mean, come on. Of course they think she's crazy, right? Right. And essentially, they throw her out. But we've already learned enough about Joan of Arc to know she's not going to give up. How does she finally convince them? Well, she convinces them by making a prophecy. Actually, about a battle that has just happened. Now, of course, we're in the 1400s, so news travels slowly. But nine days later, they get the news that this battle, in fact, did happen. And so this convinces the governor that she really is sent by God. So he agrees to send her with horses and men. This was the first real example of her strength of purpose, because this actually took her about three years to accomplish. So now she's 17. And Katie, we're told that the governor gives her 25 strong men at arms with horses and sends her on her way to meet the king. But this group of 25 strong men aren't really what they seem. They weren't the governor's best men. No, it's a pretty motley crew. It does look like one of Twain's group of characters, though. You have some of her childhood friends, a few people who happen to be standing nearby and have never ridden a horse before, but two of the knights who heard her original pleas, they sign on. They're believers. So there's some semblance of a group of men-at-arms. Not only has she now convinced most of her friends and a lot of the common folk, but even some of the knights that are hearing her story are beginning to believe her as well. In fact, one of the knights recalls an old prophecy by Merlin, That sort of reinforces her statement that she's supposed to save France. Well, any good knight would be schooled in Merlin's prophecies, wouldn't they? Yes, as well as any reader of Mark Twain. (laughs) Right. So, 800 years ago, Merlin said, France will be lost by a woman and regained by a woman. And they've just witnessed the Queen release control of France to the English. And they're thinking, could this be? A young Joan of Arc could be the woman who will save France. Her prophecy about the lost battle, as well as this old Merlin prophecy, are beginning to convince a lot of people that she may in fact be who she says she is. So she sets off on this grand adventure, during which she begins to prove herself to this motley crew of soldiers that have been assembled. Well, Peter, tell me about one of these events that begin to convince the men she really does know what she's doing. 
Uh, sure. Word of this young girl, who is now a soldier, spreads very quickly, so everyone is looking for her. Most notably, the English guard, because they want to take her down. Uh, wouldn't you know it, she and her group run across one of these troops. Right. She's been traveling at night to avoid detection, and she's wearing armor to disguise herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been approved to wear armor, the garb of a soldier. You know, that's right. I forgot that moment. The priests actually have to get involved and decide that even though she's a girl, she can wear manly clothes because she's going into a battle. Right. So, out on the road, Joan's group runs into this English troop that's looking for her. Now, because she's basically in disguise, she tricks them into believing that she is also looking <laughs> for Joan. And she says that she'll head over to this bridge where she thinks Joan will be, and she'll take care of it. So basically, she again uses her intellectual skills to get herself out of a situation. Smart girl. Yeah, but this is even more important because she not only gets herself out of it, but she also gets her troops out of it, which proves herself in the process. It's essentially events like these that show her ability to lead, thereby giving her men confidence in her powers. Precisely. They didn't even have to engage in battle. She took the bridge. And then she knocked down that bridge. Knocked down that bridge. So they couldn't follow her. Smart. Smart, smart girl. <laughs> okay, now I'd like to dive into how Joan of Arc went to the king and convinces him that she's on a mission from God. It's a pivotal turning point in the story, and I think we're all anxious to see how she pulls this all off. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for this season of Novel Conversations, The Great Courses Plus. We have the wonderful opportunity to share a great service that I feel would be a great benefit to our Novel Conversations listeners. After all, as lovers of literature, it's all about enriching our lives and furthering our knowledge. And that's what Great Courses Plus is all about, too. With this streaming service, we have the freedom to learn more about virtually any topic, and not just get the basics, but truly master it. With the Great Courses Plus app, you can learn unique perspectives from top engaging experts in their fields, have the flexibility to watch or listen just about anywhere, and have unlimited access to thousands of lectures on topics like Shakespeare, great music of the 20th century, even travel photography or Mediterranean cooking. This specific course, Life Lessons from the Great Books, I think you'll particularly enjoy. Professor Rufus Fears draws us into the world of masterpieces like Macbeth, Brave New World, Odyssey, and more, exploring the wisdom that can be gleaned from each story and the many ways it can be applied to any culture or stage of life. This is something we always do with our discussions on Novel Conversations. So, if you enjoy taking in the wisdom of some of the greatest authors that ever lived, please look into taking the course, Life Lessons from the Great Books, on the Great Courses Plus app. And right now, we have a special limited time offer for all Novel Conversations listeners. You can get an entire month for free. To start your free month trial, all you have to do is sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash novel. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash novel. So, Peter, Katie, please make sure you tell all your friends and family about this great offer. They can get a month's trial for free. Yeah, my mom loves this service. Your mom already has it? Mm-hmm. Peter, please make sure you tell your family as well. Not a problem. I think it's a great opportunity. All right, let's get back to our discussion on the novel, The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Okay, Peter, Joan has had to convince her friends about the truthfulness of her visions, and she does that by letting one of her friends actually see her receiving this vision. She then has to convince the governor to send her to the king with some men-at-arms. And she does this by prophesizing a battle loss that he then hears about, and he's convinced of the prophecy. Now she needs to convince the king about her prophecies and her visions. How is she going to do that? Well, she begins by sending a letter, which goes unanswered. 
She next sends her two knights, and they sing her praises to the king, which I think plants the seed. The next process, the king sends bishops to receive her message, and these are really more than just bishops. These are some of his closest counselors as well. So some of his closest counselors, which we later learned, are enemies also. We've had 70 years of war. The king has been ill-advised the whole way. So these bishops come to hear her message. However, again, an example of her steadfastness. She will not give her message to anyone but the king. This in turn impresses the king. So he then grants her an audience. But Katie, this audience isn't quite what she's expecting. Or maybe it is? Well, she gets the audience in part because she promises that she has a message for the king that only he will understand. He will know that she's true when he hears this message. She also indicated in her letter that she would know him even if he were in disguise. So maybe she did anticipate. It's a grand procession, and Twain gives us a great description, as he loves to do, about the ridiculousness of the courts and royals. Right, like in Prince and the Pauper. (laughs) But when she finally arrives to the front of the throne, she takes a quick look around, looking for the real king, because she knows right away that this is not the king sitting on the throne. And she does immediately pick out the true king, actually the Dauphin. She does. He's dressed as one of the members of the court. And uh, let me be clear about why she's calling the king the Dauphin. Basically, it's because he's the heir to the French throne, which is currently being occupied by the English king. So he is really not the king at this point. That's right. The crowning is part of her master plan. So to Joan, he was the Dauphin. But first he has to take the throne back from the English before she can actually give it to a French king. But Peter, just the fact that Joan of Arc recognized him as the future king was not enough to convince him of her visions and of her prophecies. He needed a little bit more proof, and she quickly gives it to him. Right. She tells him there's a secret trouble in your heart, which you speak of to no one. Well, Peter, what is this deep, dark secret? Well, it's that the Dauphin does not believe in his heart of hearts that he is the lawful heir, that he is of the proper lineage to the throne. But Joan dispels all that by assuring him that God has told her that he is the lawful heir. And the fact that she knows his deepest, darkest secret finally convinces him of her truthfulness. But not everyone. No, there's still a couple of doubting counselors. What did they tell him? They pose the question, how can you know that her voices are from God and not from Satan? So let's have her checked out one last time. And they send a team of bishops to evaluate her. Right. He privately appoints a commission of bishops to visit and question Joan daily until they could find out whether her supernatural held from heaven or from hell. And this does go on for days. This is a long process. But we have to go through this. If she's going to be receiving the full armies of the country of France and all their soldiers and lead them, it's an exhaustive process to convince everyone. They actually send commissioners to her hometown to interview her family. They interview her friends. They interview her priest. And they determine that they can't determine if she's coming from God or from Satan because they're actually just afraid to make the wrong decision there. Very political. Yes, it was. Very Mark Twain. Yes, it is. And even later in the book, Twain explains it further. He says, the parish priests govern the nation. So that has to be from the religious and from the parish priests to get this approval before the king can agree with them. 
because the people follow the priests. And of course, one of the priests eventually comes up with the question, well, if God wants to free France, why doesn't God just free France? And how does Joan respond to that? Joan responded, God helps those who help themselves. I've heard that. You have. And she really says that God is empowering her and the people. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. To take back France. And in fact, this argument convinces one of the priests who remembers, By God, the child has said true. After all, he willed that Goliath should be slain, and he sent a child like this to do it. Exactly. But Katie, finally... Finally, the people of France began to wake up to this and believe in her. From the royal court to the villagers, everybody felt but couldn't explain or describe this feeling. So one by one, they all surrendered, saying, this child is sent by God. So Peter, finally Joan of Arc is commander-in-chief and general of the armies of France, right? And it's at this point that she begins assembling her army. What's her first official act as commander of the armies of France? Well, her first official act is to send a letter to the English commanders at Orléans. Uh, We'd say Orleans, but she basically told them, leave France. She gives them a chance to surrender before a battle ensues. But Katie, of course, battles do ensue. And Joan of Arc is going to fight these battles in a much different way than the French have been fighting them for the last 70 years. They've gotten used to attempting, and never very successfully, to lay siege to some of the English forts and some of the English castles. They would surround the castle and basically try to starve the people out. Nothing goes in, nothing comes out. But this would take eight, nine months. It could even take a year or more. Joan says, no, this is crazy. We're going to go to the gates, and we're going to smash them down, and we're going to win these castles. We don't have the time for sieges. My voices say, go to war, and go to war now. That's right. Not only were their sieges unsuccessful because they couldn't wait out the English, the French had fewer reserves and supplies, but they ended up retreating. Right. An English fort would be besieged, and eventually reinforcements would come from another English fort, and the French would scatter. They ran away from every battle, so 70 years of the French running from the English, and she empowers them to head into battle. Now let's talk about a couple of the highlights. The first one is the Battle of Orléans. The the battle for Orléans was her proving ground, where she not only proved herself in real battle conditions, but she also proved her philosophy of attacking as opposed to besieging these Bastilles. And through this Battle of Orléans, she also gained the nickname the Maid of Orléans. And not only did she gain a nickname, but because of the success of this battle, she gains a reputation, which now helps her very much as she continues to go from city to city. Some of these cities are actually being abandoned by the English and just being given back to the French. The English don't want anything to do with Joan of Arc. She's racking up victories pretty quickly. But Peter, the real turning point in this war is the Battle of Pate. That battle is really the turning point of the 100 years war between England and France, which has now swung back control of France to France. And it brings us to Joan being able to bring the Dauphin in for his coronation. All right, let's be clear. While they haven't conquered all of the territory of France, they've taken enough of the cities where now they believe they are in control of the country. The English are still ensconced in Paris, and the king really doesn't want to push on to Paris just yet. 
But Joan does decide that now most of her prophecy has been fulfilled, and it's time for the Dauphin to be coronated at the cathedral in Rheims. And that is what happens. She believes that this is the end of her military career at this point, but it isn't. Right. She believes that now that she's had the Dauphin crowned, he will push on to finish the Battle of Paris, and the French will have regained their country. Oh, but the king is such a disappointment. You know, he really is. What the king really wants is to get back Burgundy, which is under the control of English sympathizers. So he sends Joan and her army. However... That's the end for Joan. Well, now wait, you can't just say that. What do you mean, that's the end? Well, that's her last battle. She's captured. Captured by the English? She's captured by the Burgundians, who are actually French, but they're the English sympathizers. So they expect a ransom for her, and it never comes from the French. So when they finally receive a fair price for what would be fitting for her position as leader of the French army, it comes from England. So she's sold as a prisoner to the English. And all this time, the newly crowned king of France is basically... Partying. Uh, He's enjoying his new crown, isn't he? Oh, yeah. He's completely abandoned her. She's holding out hope there will be a great battle to save her. Because her voices have told her, you will be freed from this place. She doesn't know that it's going to come at the moment of her death. And actually, Katie, when she's turned over to the English, she's not turned over to the English crown, or the English government, as we would say. She's turned over to the English church, to the priests. Which allows her to be questioned about all of her intentions, religiously, morally, legally, and politically. Actually, they want to kill her because she is a threat to the established church. She's a woman. She's 19 or 20 years old at this point. She's a very powerful spiritual figure in both France and even England at this time. And the people are following her in legions. So just as earlier when she was trying to prove herself to the king, she now has to go before a commission of bishops and judges and prove her righteousness all over again. Correct. But this is not just a commission of local bishops. Oh, not nearly. These are some of the most learned men in all of England and France. And this proves to be a set of trials which are unwinnable even for Joan. Well, it's not a fair jury, that's for sure. The deck has been stacked. I believe Twain tells us at one point there are 65 priests versus this one young lady. First, there are physical trials for her. She is forced to wear heavy chains. She's kept in a dark tower. She thinks she's being poisoned. And again, let's be clear. This is an ecclesiastical inquisition. What they really want to get to is, are these voices from God or are they the voices of Satan? And that's really what they want to prove, that she's a messenger of the devil and not of God. And so, in this weakened physical state, they bring her to trial. However, she does stand up to it. And really, the only way that they're going to beat her is to trick her. Which they eventually do, but it does take weeks. She's called to this commission for questioning almost every single day. And we're told four or five hours a day, nothing to drink, nothing to eat, sitting on a hard bench answering these questions. And it's not just about the big issues of good versus evil and right versus wrong. They're talking to her about why she wears men's clothes. And did the angels talk to her in French or in English? Does she really believe that fairies come out at night and dance around a tree? I mean, they got into a lot of issues. She had to try to prove that she had been given permission to wear a suit of armor. She had to try to prove that she did hear these voices and that they spoke to her in a language that she could understand, French. They wanted her to take on an oath that she would answer everything truthfully, and she always refused. She said, I won't, and I can't answer everything that you may ask of me, but I will answer truthfully that which I choose to answer. So the beginning of every day's trial started off this way. Quoting, And the bishop opens each trial with, 
You are required now to take the oath, pure and simple, to answer truly all questions asked you. And she says, I have made oath yesterday, my lord. Let that suffice. And she says this every day. She does. She says, no, I don't know what you're going to ask me. You might ask me things which I could not tell. Then they try again. Now, notice the form of this sleek strategist's first remark flung out in an easy offhand way that would have thrown any unwatching person off his guard. Now, Joan, the matter is very simple. To speak up and frankly and truly answer the question as you have sworn to do. But Joan was not asleep. She said no. You could ask me these things which I could not tell you, and I would not. The whole commission is really here just to trick her into saying something incriminating. In fact, the bishop tries another day another way. He tells her, in refusing to swear, you place yourself under suspicion. And Joan says, let be, I have sworn already. It is enough. The bishop continues to insist. Joan answered that she would tell what she knew, but not all that she knew. She says, I came from God. I have nothing more to do here. Return me to the God from whom I came. If you were well informed concerning me, you would wish me out of your hands. I have done nothing but by revelation. Right. So Joan continues to thwart the bishop's attempts to trap her. And what this does is bring us to this final trick, which results in her verdict. It's finally when they have to present her the list of her alleged crimes, and she has to sign off on this list of charges. They slip a different piece of paper in front of her hand. She signs an agreement that she has committed the crimes, and that seals her fate. And what was that verdict? That verdict is guilty. She is charged as a heretic. And the sentence for a heretic? To burn at the stake. That's right. All right, Katie, Peter, through our entire conversation about this novel, we talked about how Joan faced every trial, every tribulation, every battle. Now she's about to face her final test, to be burned at the stake for being a heretic. Well, this is tough. She's told by the executioner, I've come to prepare you for your death. It is to be today. She says, what death is it? And he says, by fire. And Peter, Joan of Arc does die as she lived, heroically and saintly. She does. And we see that she really embodies both. Not only the way she dies, which is with a great deal of courage and dignity, but also prior to her death, She's asked for forgiveness by various people on her way to the stake, one being a priest who betrayed her confession during her trial. And she's also given a cross to hold by two English knights who admire her so much that they are there to honor her. One of the last things she asked for is holy water. But in the next moment, her fears were gone. They came no more to torture her. Someone raises a cross and she says, keep it always in my sight until the end. Then the pitchy smoke shot through the red flashes of flame and hid her from sight, and from the heart of this darkness her voice rose strong and eloquent in prayer. And when, by moments, the wind shredded somewhat of the smoke aside, there were veiled glimpses of an upturned face and moving lips. At last, a mercifully swift tide of flames burst upward, and none saw that face any more, nor that form, and the voice was still. But Peter... The novel doesn't quite end with Joan's death. What about the fate of France? It does not. With this execution, it was actually the opposite of what the executioners had hoped. It had actually emboldened the French people and gave them what I think was the first true sense of national pride. 
But it took them another 20 years to gain back all of that French territory. As she prophesied. That's right. She had told them, if you let me fight this war the way I want, we can finish it in two years. Stop me and it'll take 20. And that's exactly what happened. That's right. That's right. Even there, the novel doesn't quite end. There's one more act here, and that's the rehabilitation of Joan of Arc in France. In fact, as Mark Twain writes it, Now as to the rehabilitation, Joan crowned the king at Rems, and for reward he allowed her to be hunted to her death without making one effort to save her. During the next 23 years, he remained indifferent to her memory, indifferent to the fact that her good name was under a damning plot put there by the priests because of the deeds which she had done in saving him his scepter, indifferent to the fact that France was ashamed and longed to have their fame restored, indifferent all that time. Until... Until he needed some help. The king finally realized that he had received his crown from someone who had been proven to be a heretic and a sorceress. Mm -mm. So he needed to make her a true hero and a saint. That's what began this process. And that process actually begins in Rome with the Pope holding what they call the Rehabilitation Commission. Which in the end had Joan being canonized, the patron saint of France. And essentially that's how our novel, The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain, ends. As it should. Yeah. Now, Katie, Peter, of course, during our conversation, we weren't able to get to every character or every scene in our novel. So if there's a moment we missed or a quote that you want to read, now's your opportunity. Katie, do you have something? I have a passage from the General Lahir, who is a character we weren't able to discuss. Quickly, he was the general of the French armies before Joan of Arc came along. And they're quite a pair. Slight 17-year-old young lady and this really... Uh, profane comes to mind. Profane general. He was really the polar opposite of her. He was. And he was also her biggest supporter. So when the French generals, who are used to laying a siege or retreating from a battle, when they needed a pep talk, it was Lahir who says, What would Joan of Arc do with it? With her is no sitting down and starving out, no dilly-dallying and fooling around, no lazing, loafing, and going to sleep. No, it's storm, 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 and still storm, 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 and forever storm, storm, storm. Hunt the enemy to his hole, then turn her France hurricanes loose and carry him by storm. And that is my sort. Well, Katie, that quote actually fits into one of the quotes that I wanted to read. I have to admit, I particularly enjoyed some of the less flattering descriptions of the French soldiers. And it's probably because the soldiers were this way that they needed a general like Lahir. Here's the quote. Yes, most Frenchmen were soldiers and admirable runners, too, both by practice and inheritance. They had done next to nothing but run for near a century. But that was not their fault. They had had no fair and proper leadership. Hence, running became the habit of the French troops. And no wonder. I understand you like the French. Well, my cheap shots aside, Peter, I know you actually have a quote that reflects a little bit better on the French soldier and uh, French patriotism. I do. Actually, my favorite passage is really a summary of what Joan of Arc did for France. And consequently, I think, the world. Which is, I dare say, the invention of patriotism. When you think about the Statue of Liberty and that the French gave it to us, I think it kind of fits in with this passage, which is very near the end of the book. With Joan of Arc, love of country was more than a sentiment. It was a passion. She was the genius of patriotism. She was patriotism embodied, concreted, made fresh and palpable to the touch and visible to the eye. Love Mercy, charity, fortitude, war, peace, poetry, music. 
These may be symbolized by that slender girl and her first young bloom with a martyr's crown upon her head and in her hand the sword that severed her country's bonds. Shall not this and no other stand for patriotism through all the ages until time shall end? Ooh, that's a good one. That is a good quote. But Peter, I think the fact that Joan of Arc embodied not only that kind of nationalist patriotism, but also piety, also logic, also compassion, makes her story ageless, as well as one of the world's greatest stories. It really does. Sure does. All right, Peter, Katie, before we end our conversation today, I'm just curious, were you surprised to learn that the initials for Sir Louis LeConte are actually the same as Samuel Langhorne Clemens, the real name of Mark Twain? Whoa. I didn't catch that. There you go. SLC, Samuel Mm. Langhorne Clemens, Sir Louis LeConte. Wow. Cool, Frank. And with Mark Twain being clever as Mark Twain is, this is where we'll end today's conversation about the novel, The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. Peter, Kate, I want to thank both of you for coming in and having this conversation with me today. Thanks, Frank. Great to be here. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of the Front Porch People. For more information about upcoming Novel Conversations, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Or go to our website at thefrontporchpeople.com. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. A special thanks to producer Julie Fink, audio engineers Sean Ruhlhoffman, Eric Coltnow, and Dave Douglas, and executive producer Joan Andrews. We'd also like to thank our researchers Kate O'Neill and Kevin Kerwin. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.